Good evening. Um, hello, I'm Kathleen Neal, and I'd like to welcome you to Poetry and Conversation. It's an, an ongoing series of readings and conversations with poets here at the Pratt. We're very happy that you joined us tonight, and we hope you will also join us on December 2nd um, for the Pratt Annual Cave Canem Poets Reading, this year featuring um, Kwame Dawes. And then in January, we will host poets Sue Ellen Thompson and Kathleen Helen. Other future events, just to give you a summary of how the, our series is sort of an ongoing, um, you know, events. Um, there's going to be a poetry contest sponsored by the Little Patuxent Review, um, details of which will be forthcoming on our website. Um, and then in February, a series of poetry workshops taught by Clarinda Harris and then followed by a reading with Clarinda Harris and poet Karen Gartha. Um, but now for tonight, which is very exciting as we welcome Linda Paston and Myra Sclaru. Um, first we're going to introduce, Shailene is going to introduce both poets and then each poet will read for their works for a little bit and then we're gonna have a Q&A with the poets giving you an opportunity to ask any questions you might have and then followed by a brief reading to close out the evening. So without any further ado, there, Shailene Byer will introduce. Thank you. Um, okay, I'm Myra Sklaru, former president of the artist community Yado and professor emerita of literature at American University, is the author of three chapbooks and seven collections of poetry, including Harmless Lithuania, New and Selected Poems, The Witness Trees, and she has a new chapbook, If You Want to Live Forever. Awards include the Penn Syndicated Fiction Award and the National Jewish Book Council Award in Poetry. Her poetry has been recorded for the Archive of Recorded Poetry and Literature Library of Congress. Myra Sklaru's poems are like secrets turned inside out, ways of voicing what we normally leave out when we tell stories about our loves, our cultures, our words. Drawn to what is hidden, her language is often spare and subtle and seems driven less by the poet's desire to express herself than by her consuming care to serve others, communities, worlds. Music and imagery are married to morality in writing marked not merely by beauty but by fearlessness and devotion to truth. Linda Paston has written over 11 books, including the recent collections The Last Uncle, Queen of a Rainy Country, and Traveling Light. She has received the Dylan Thomas Award, a Pushcart Prize, the Bess Hoken Prize from Poetry, the Poetry Society of America's Alice Faye de Castagnola Award, and the Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize. Her PMAM New and Selected Poems and Carnival Evening New and Selected Poems 1968-1998 were finalists for the National Book Award and The Imperfect Paradise was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. From 1991 to 1995, Paston served as Poet Laureate of Maryland. She lives in Potomac, Maryland. Linda Paston's poems make us see things both very far away and very close in the same breath. They pick out and honor ordinary objects, people, and seasons in beautifully chaste language, careful and clear as the brush strokes in a still life. 
At the same time, the poems are full of surprising turns in which mortal details shine, showing their places in universal patterns. In their attention to the quotidian, the poems are modest, humorous, gently rueful. In their vision of the timeless, they are full of poise, peace, and delight. What they give us is a world that looks just like this world, only strange and eternal. They restore us to the wonder of our own lives. Please help me to welcome Myris Clarou and Linda Paston. Thank you, Shailene. What a beautiful introduction. I'm pleased to share the platform with my wonderful friend and wonderful poet, Linda Paston, and to return to this remarkable library. I, I was actually born in Baltimore on Liberty Heights Avenue, in wherever that is, and, uh, and I, used to, I used to go to the Enoch Pratt Library every week. I was, I'm old enough that we didn't have a lot of money in those days. My dad had just finished graduate school, and he had three daughters, and um, we, we used the library as much as we could, and I was sick a lot, so I couldn't go to school, and the, the height of the day was when he returned home from work carrying books from the Enoch Pratt Library. In those days, I read everything I could get my hands on, um, from Harvey Cushing, the neurosurgeon, to Madame Curie, who was my great heroine, uh, to books about bugs. I love bugs. Um, and um, fairy tales and adventures in the world. Um, What's so astonishing to me about, about this library is that Enoch Pratt um, established the library or gave the money for the library and for, for four other um, branch libraries in 1882. And one of the stipulations was that it would be, there would be no uh, restrictions regarding race, gender, or anything else. Um, and that was very unusual at the time. Um, if you read Richard Wright, you'll remember that that as late as the 40s and later, um, African-Americans couldn't use the public library and he had to pretend he was getting books out for white people um, and that was his way of trying to educate himself. So it's especially pleasing for me to, to be able to read here. Um, a poem I'm, I haven't finished, so you'll hear, hear a draft, um, but I thought if I'm reading at the library, I have to write a poem about a book, so... Ode to the Book. In there, everything is possible, winter and summer on the same page, a scarab pushing a dung ball across the desert, numbers counting to ten in Spanish, babies flying over the ocean, a boy living in a poplar tree, red shoes escaping into the forest. In there, they haven't invented computers yet. The only tweets come from birds. In there, people can remember everything, the history of the world, the Big Bang, the first lunar eclipse, the day you were born. In there, you can turn pages, like lifting invisible people, telling the stories of their lives. And when you are tired, you can put your book down, close your eyes, and dream what will happen next in the story you've just finished reading. and a poem called Dingbat. Uh, I didn't know 
what a dingbat was. When I was little, I thought a dingbat was, was a, a bad boy who did bad things. And, uh, and then, of course, I learned that it has to do with ornaments that printers put in books. So this is my poem to the dingbat. That was what I called the boy who sat behind me in third grade, dipping my pigtails into the inkwell, or the bully who threw a stone into a yellow jacket's nest and challenged me to set my feet into their raging core. I hadn't heard of webdings or wingdings or rebus, symbols in place of words, printers, ornaments. I fled home that day, a string of wasps about my head, like the infant St. Ambrose, his swarm of bees settled on his face, a drop of honey left behind. And a poem about misreading. When you get old, you can't see as well as you used to. And so I misread a lot, and that kind of opens up new avenues. So I was reading poems by the Polish poet Adam Czerniawski, and he says... I'm packing my bags, flames burn us. I'm packing my bugs. Reluctant, they wander off. I carefully pick them from among the woolen blankets. I urge them to hurry. The enemy is at the door. They dislike small spaces, airless containers, going without food for days. They miss yew bushes, soft cones of flowers, nuzzling against currents of air. I do not know what language they speak, how to explain that we have no choice, how the world requires our departure. They scramble just out of my reach, cling to one another, withdraw their antennae as if they could silence any signal of danger. I scoop them up in my arms, no matter the bomb in the school library, mixing blood in pages of holy books, My bugs and I, we have no opinion today on the jurisdiction of righteousness, on who owns the air, the currents of the sea, on which God is memory's oldest, on violence within pushing with all its might against violence without. If you want to live forever, I'm not sure I do, but... If you want to live forever, become a metaphor. The yellow shapes that cover the earth are not leaves but butterflies, not the end of summer but the birth of motion. The dead are snowflakes. They brush against your shoulder. One day you will be a butterfly. You will live in the other world. And a poem that's set in Lithuania where my part of my family originated um, in, during the war in early, in early 1941. People were hiding, and often they, hot, they hid in haystacks. And this is a, a poem about some. 1941. You decide to crawl out from the haystack where you are hiding to come up for air, Even the lowliest fish of the sea is allowed to pull the residue of air into its blood. For some, it is too late. The pitchfork of the farmer pushed in and in. But you scramble to the top of a chimney pot where two storks have made their immense nest. 
You can be seen in the flat landscape. You take no trouble to conceal yourself. This is before the farmer raises his rifle, before your expulsion from this world into the next. You warm yourself among the peacocks. I'm sorry, you warm yourself among the storks. Prophet among birds, your world ajar. You read the sun trying to go down, the moon with its hem caught on the horizon. For a moment in perfect stasis, high on your absurd perch, you are still breathing. And a small poem about uh, the woman we've all read about in Spain who took it upon herself to repair a fresco in her church, you might remember. Um, and she, it was the fresco of, of Christ as he was being presented um, before the crucifix, crucifixion. Um, and the, the title um, is what the fresco was called, an ecce homo, um, Behold the man, behold the man. In Greek, it's idu o anthropos, behold the man. An elderly parishioner tried to restore a 19th century fresco in, in Santuero de la Misericordia near Zaragoza, Spain. She, she, well, the poem says it. She has smoothed away anguish, erased dread and pain. Our savior is beatific, unafraid between his scrolls. Behold the man, his crown of thorns bears no spikes, but his all tender curl, he dreams in gentle freeze, what to make of an eye slightly raised above the other, as if it could not come into full accord with what the man sees, and how are we to read the bunting of hair that traverses the head like an ancient hood, how hard she worked in sight of the priest to make our savior right again. Do not fault this elderly parishioner. She has sealed his wounds, gathered the folds of his robes about his body. You can see she means no harm. Um, A poem for Dorothy and Bill Stafford. Bill Stafford was a wonderful poet and was our, our U.S. Poet Laureate, and we were very lucky to know him. Dorothy's in her 90s, and I called her, and, she, and th- this is how it begins. Dorothy, do you know I'm 91? I can still hear and see and chew and walk. I have to go. I'm spending the weekend in a lighthouse. Gerda's last words, more light, more light. Dorothy's making a pie. Bill is in the study. Bill, I need your help, she calls to him. He comes into the kitchen. Bill's last words, I need a spatula. Dorothy, a former student, contacted me. He said, I was once your student. You were the best teacher I ever had. Well, she said, how did you turn out? (laughs) Dorothy has a little piece of paper she keeps in her house when she goes out, just in case something happens and she doesn't get back home. To whom it may concern, thank you. (laughs) A newspaper interviewer is trying to get at Bill's grief on the death of the poet Richard Hugo, A long pause, Bill. We were on a cash basis, nothing kept from one another, no charges, no debts. Bill was asked by someone in his audience if he knows ahead of time how a poem he's working on will turn out. No, he said, but I know how it will smell. (laughs) 
I think I'll end with this one written for my son a long time ago. Now he's a parent. Poem of the Mother. The heart goes out ahead, scouting for him, while I stay at home, keeping the fire, holding the house down around myself like a skirt from the high wind. The boy does not know how my eye strains to make out his small animal shape, swimming hard across the future, nor that I have strengthened myself like the wood side of this house for his benefit. I, still, I stay still so he can rail against me. I stay at the fixed center of things like a jar on its shelf or the clock on the mantel so when his time comes he can leave me. Thank you. pleasure to read here with Myra, who has been a friend from my earliest times in, in Maryland and who has helped me with many, many of my poems. Um, briefly after college, I got myself a master's degree in library science. Um, now, when I go into a library, I'm so computer illiterate that I can't find a book. It's very embarrassing. But the one thing I remember from that year so long ago was that all we heard about was the Enoch Pratt Library. I mean, whatever they wanted us to do, they said, get in touch with them. They do it right. And so I, I'm really honored to be here giving a reading. Um, I'm going to start with a poem for the season. November. It is an old drama, this disappearance of the leaves, this seeming death of the landscape. In a later scene, or earlier, the trees, like gnarled magicians, produce handkerchiefs of leaves out of empty branches. And we watch we are like children at this spectacle of leaves, as if one day we too will open the wooden doors of our coffins and come out smiling and bowing all over again. I, I don't get to Baltimore very, very often, um, but years ago when my parents were alive and in New York, we would take the drive and go through the harbor tunnel then. And I, this is a very old poem that I wrote in those years that I thought I should be tonight, On the Road to the Harbor Tunnel. A boneyard of old cars rusts away in all the positions of love. The sun rusts away in the evasive west. There are auguries to read in these mechanical entrails of Baltimore before we also learn the taste of metal. I have always compulsively written poems in the voice of and about Eve. I, I'm not sure why she's fascinated me so much. And now that I live... Um, out in the woods, and my husband is a wonderful gardener. Um, I seem to be writing p 
poems about gardens that all turn out to be poems about Eden. So I thought I'd, I'd read a few of these. <clears throat> they started my earliest books, and they, I'm still, still writing them. Mother Eve. Of course she never was a child herself, waking as she did one morning, full grown and perfect, with only Adam, another innocent, to love her and instruct. There was no learning step by step to walk, no bruised elbows or knees, no small transgressions. There was only the round white mound of the moon rising, which could neither be suckled nor leaned against. And perhaps the serpent spoke in a woman's voice, mothering. Oh, who can blame her? When she held her own child in her arms, what did she make of that new animal? Did she love Cain too little or too much, looking down at her now flawed body as if her rib, like Adam's, might be gone. In the litany of naming that continued for children instead of plants, no daughter is mentioned. But generations later, there was Rachel, all mother herself, who knew that bringing forth a child in pain is only the start. It is losing them and Benjamin so young that is the punishment. Um, this is another a garden poem. Um, I have to confess that I am also um, compulsively attached to dogs. I am a real dog person and this will show that. It's called In the Garden. I tell my dog to sit, and he sits, and I give him a biscuit. I tell him to come, and he comes and sits, and I give him a biscuit again. I tell my dog, lie down, and he sits, looking up at me with trust and adoration. I pause. I give him a biscuit this is the beginning of love and disobedience. I was never meant to be a god. I thought I might be able to fool myself into not writing any more Eve poems. Um, there was a time when all I could write were food poems, and to stop myself from doing that, um, I wrote a poem called The Last Food Poem, and I thought I would try it with Eve, even though it didn't work with the food poems. So in my new book, I have a poem called, if I can find it, Eve on Her Deathbed. Mm. Eve on her deathbed. In the end, we are no more than our own stories, 
mine a few brief passages in the book, no further trace of plot or dialogue. But I once had a lover no one noticed as he slipped through the pages, through the lists of those begotten and begetting. Does he remember our faltering younger selves, the pleasures we took while Adam, a good bureaucrat, busied himself with naming things even after Eden? What scraps will our children remember of us to whom our story is simple and they themselves the heroes of it? I woke that first day with Adam for company and the tangled path I would soon follow I've tried to forget. The animals stunned at first in the forest, the terrible beating wings of the angel, the livid curse of childbirth to come. And then the children themselves loving at times, at times unmerciful. Because of me, there is just one narrative for everyone, one indelible line from birth to death, with pain or lust, with even love or murder, only brief diversions, subplots. But what I think of now, in the final bitterness of age, is the way the garden groomed itself in the succulent air of summer, each flower the essence of its own color the way even the serpent knew it had a part it had to play if there were to be a story at all. And like Myra, I felt that I should read a couple of poems, at least about books. Um, This one I wrote about a wonderful little bookstore that used to be in Potomac Village where I live, is, is no longer but I wrote this poem then called The Bookstall. Just looking at them, I grow greedy, as if they were freshly baked loaves waiting on their shelves to be broken open, that one and that. And I make my choice in a mood of exalted luck, browsing among them like a cow in sweetest pasture. For life is continuous as long as they wait to be read, these ink paths opening into the future, page after page, every book its own receding horizon. And I hold them, one in each hand, a curious ballast waiting me here to the earth. And this is a little poem in three parts. Um, It's called Realms of Gold after the Keats line. And um, the Anna in part two is, of course, Anna Karenina. And I think that's all you have to know. Realms of Gold, one, recess. I used to think the cover of a book was a door I could pull shut after me that I was as safe between pages as between the clean sheets of my bed at home. The children in those books were not like me. They had the shine of bravery or luck, and their stories had endings. But when Miss Colton called, you who third grade, and I had to come running, the book suddenly slippery under my arm, 
Sometimes those children ran with me. Two, the quarrel. What are you doing, he asks, and I turn a page, then another. Are you still reading? And I pile page after page like sandbags between us. I'm going to tear that book out of your hands, he says, but I don't hear him. The sound of pages turning is like a far train approaching, and Anna has just entered the station. Three, final instructions. When the time comes, make my grave with clean sheets and a comforter of flowers. If you come to call, rest against the stone which will lean like a bookend over my head. Make yourself at home there. Read to me. Often when there's going to be a question session afterwards, I read a poem that might anticipate a question. And this poem, I do get this question I get quite often. Why are your poems so dark? Isn't the moon dark too most of the time? And doesn't the white page seem unfinished without the dark stain of alphabets? When God demanded light, he didn't banish darkness. Instead, he invented ebony and crows and that small mole on your left cheekbone. Or did you mean to ask, why are you sad so often? Ask the moon. Ask what it has witnessed. One more older poem, and then I'm going to just read from my new book. This is called An Early Afterlife. It was the title poem of one of the book a few books ago, and I start with the quote from Horace, a wise man in time of peace shall make the necessary preparations for war. Why don't we say goodbye right now in the fallacy of perfect health before whatever is going to happen happens? We could perfect our parting like those characters in On the Beach who said farewell in the shadow of the bomb as we sat watching young and holding hands at the movies. We could use the loving words we otherwise might not have time to say. We could hold each other for hours in a quintessential dress rehearsal. Then we would just continue for however many years were left, the ragged things that are coming next, arteries closing like rivers silting over, or rampant cells stampeding us to the exit, would be like postscripts to our lives and wouldn't matter and we would bask in an early afterlife of ordinary days, impervious to the inclement weather already in our long-range forecast. Nothing could touch us. We'd never have to say goodbye again.
I, I made myself a list of a few of the poems that I wanted to read from Traveling Light, and when I grabbed a book as I was rushing out the door, it was my um, free publication copy without any numbers <laughs> on the table of contents, so I may spend some time looking for poems, for which I apologize. Oh, I would love a copy. That <laughs> would be great. <laughs> Thank you so much. The Burglary. They stole my mother's silver, melting it down perhaps into pure mineral worth only its own weight. We must eat with our hands now, grab for food in this new place of greed, our table set only with memories, tarnishing even as we speak. My mother, holding a shining ladle in her hand, serving the broth to children who will forget to polish her silver, forget even to lock the house, while forks and spoons are divided from all purpose. Patterns are lost like freezes after centuries of rain, and every knife is robbed of its cutting edge. I mentioned that I, I write often also of food. I have a son who's a chef, and I, I blame that on all the food poems he had to read. Um, this is a newer, a newer food poem. It's, it's called Bread and After Levchev. Oh, I also have to tell you that one of my earlier books was called The Five Stages of Grief. Fred. It seems to be the five stages of yeast, not grief, you like to write about, my son says, meaning that bread is always rising and falling, being broken and eaten in my poems. And though he is only half serious, I want to say to him, Bread rising in the bowl is like breath rising in the body. Or if you knead the dough with perfect tenderness, it's like gently kneading flesh when you make love. Baguette, pita, pane, hala, naan. Bread is the universal language translatable on the famished tongue. Now it is time to open the package of yeast and moisten it with water, watching for its fizz, its blind energy, proofing, it's called the animate proof of life. Everything is ready, salt, flour, oil, breadcrumbs are what lead the children home. I have been accused of, of writing too many poems about ordinary things, and um, maybe this is a kind of answer to that. The poem is called The Ordinary. It may happen on a day of ordinary weather, the usual assembled flowers or fallen leaves disheveling the grass. 
You may be feeding the dog or sipping a cup of tea and then the telegram or the phone call or the sharp pain traveling the length of your left arm or his. And as your life is switched to a different track, the landscape through grimy windows, almost the same, though entirely different, you wonder why the wind doesn't rage and blow as it does so convincingly in Lear, for instance. It is pathetic fallacy you long for, the roses, nothing but their thorns, the downed leaves subject for a body count. And as you lie in bed like an effigy of yourself, it is the ordinary that comes to save you. The china teacup waiting to be washed, the old dog whining to go out. And I'm going to end on with the title poem. traveling light. I'm only leaving you for a handful of days, but it feels as though I'll be gone forever. The way the door closes behind me with such solidity, the way my suitcase carries everything I'd need for an eternity of traveling light. I've left my hotel number on your desk, instructions about the dog and heating dinner. But like the weather front they warn is on its way with its switchblades of wind and ice, our lives have minds of their own. Thank you so much. This is just really such a pleasure, um, such a pleasure to listen to both of you read from your wonderful poems. And um, we're going to have a little bit of Q and A now. And um, I should mention that we're we actually recording this this program. So um, if you have a question, um, we'd like you to say it into the microphone um, and so that we can record you. Um, so um, if you have a question, raise your hand, and Kim will bring you the mic, um, and our poets can answer. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can kick things off. Or, or do you have one, too? Okay. Sure. I'll. Go ahead. <laughs> the Eve poem, what was the title? And the line was, there was only the moon rising, and what came next? Mother Eve was the title. It was in Carnival Evening, and goodness, what, what comes back? To suckle, or to lean against, something of that sort. So it was only the moon rising, which could not be suckled, and okay, I'll something find to it. lean against. I if it's Mother Eve, I'll look it up. Okay, but now I'm curious, why don't I remember? Oh. <laughs> there was only the round white mound of the moon rising, which could neither be suckled nor leaned against. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yes. I love your last food poem. Mm -hmm. I was rereading it this afternoon. You mean the poem that's called The Last Food Poem? Yeah. 
I would read it, but I don't have it with me. It's in a little chapbook called I happen to um, have it Setting with... the Table. Guess what? I've got it with me. Would you like to read it? I'd be happy to. Okay. <laughs> Even though I proved that it isn't the last food poem, I wrote bread many, many years later. It's nice to see someone with this little chapbook. And I know. still have to have it signed. Okay. Oh, I guess it's the last poem in the book. Yep, right next to Thanksgiving, right. I think. The last food poem. Let this be the last food poem. We have learned civics from the salad where all lettuces are equal. Fealty from the butter cleaving to its bread. It is time to sit at a real table and eat, whispering for grace one final couplet, raspberries and cream. <laughs> Thank you for having that. I will say I'm enjoying this I will say I'm enjoying this entire collection, Queen of a Rainy Country. Thank you. Just the two on the uh, open page, The Life I Didn't Lead was The Life Led Fully, stanza by Swollen Stanza. I mean, that's, that's not a poetry poem. That's a poetry poem. It's great. It's just... And then the breakfast table with the wounding of the world mingling with smells of bacon and bread. I mean, you've got your you've got your war and your food. Uh, just I paid him to come. It's, right, <laughs> I wish I, I, I'm unemployed. Don't say that too quickly. But that's that's just wonderful there, especially for so many people here who. Uh, uh, someone a while ago was talking about Vietnam, and they quoted a. It, it was when Shailene gave me a book. And I said, well, we, we learned about Vietnam even if we didn't go. It, it was part of the family meal. And when I said family meal, people thought, what, like Thanksgiving or Easter? I said, no, we did it every night. And families don't do that. Where do they get the news? Where do they get the food? You gave us both. Thank you. Thank you. I grew up in New York City and left um, to go to college when I was 18 and never really went back to New York, although I still can hear it in my voice and my accent and feel like a New Yorker. I've lived in Maryland um, since 1959. So, am I American? Yeah, I was born... Well, I'm Jewish. Oh, my, okay. my, that's what, I was, that, really, that's that's what I was really asking. You. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, my, both sides of my family came from various parts of Poland and Russia. But you now settled here and live here in Baltimore? No, I live in... Outside New York. Of no, no, I live outside of D.C. Oh, I see. Okay. It's suburban okay. Maryland. Okay, okay. And your partner there... Are you, are you from Baltimore? Or? I was born here. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right. You said Liberty Heights. Isn't that um, isn't that something? Well, thank you. 
There's a question down there. This is not a question, it's uh, more of a comment. Uh, Linda, when you were reading the bread bomb and you went uh, baguette, pita, pane, hala, naan, I was waiting for, I didn't see naan actually, I was waiting for chapati or roti or something. So if you ever make a revision. <laughs> I could have gone on and on and on with, with breads, but. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I saw. No, I just see naan. I thought. I thought there was no mention of naans, rotis, chapatis. So I thought a revision. If you ever did a revision, you'd throw that one in. <laughs> There's a question down there. Um, I know, Linda. You had mentioned that you and Myra have been friends a long time. And, you know, she's helped you and you've helped her. How has that worked and growing as a poet? And how do you look at each other's work and, and be, you know, objective about it when you are friends? And how does that, you know, relationship work with the writing of your poetry? Well, that's, a, that's complicated. Um, I, I think um, I, I've taught workshops and, and they always work in many different ways, but... Um, I think it's important if you mean really to help to to get to know the work and the way of working of the other of the other poet or poets, um, um, and to learn how they work, um, so that what you have to offer them, how how, how you read their work, um, is in accord with with how they they write poetry. Um, so if I were to say to Linda. Um, uh, please write about you know mountains in Tibet. Um, she might say, "Well, I, that's not what I like to write about." You know, so so. But if she but if you said that to me, I'd go right ahead and do it. Which I do it. Yeah, she does assignments. That's right. She always finishes assignments. Why don't you, you try that one? <laughs> well, we meet occasionally every month and bring poems and read each other's poems and and criticize them. Um, and often when I finish something that I have no idea if it's a poem or not and I, I need some immediate feedback, I'll call poor, poor Myra and say, will you listen to something? And she's very good, but mostly a little too generous. She, she never says And My daughter, who is a young novelist who also reads all my first drafts, is... is much more willing to say, throw that out, or no good. Um, Rachel, Rachel Paston. She has two wonderful novels. Maybe they're in the library. Um, I've been in workshops with four or five poets who are in very different stages of their careers and very different amounts of talent, and the thing one has to learn to do is to criticize to say something is good or not working in terms of what they can do, what they've done, what they're learning, rather than some abstract standard. Um, but I, I truly need the few people that I trust to read my early drafts and, and tell me if I'm going off in the wrong direction. 
and I, I, I don't always do what I'm told, but I always listen and consider it seriously. And Myra has a wonderful way of, of not criticizing a word here or a word there, but seeing where the whole poem is trying to go and steering me that way. It's, it's a real gift. I'm, she was a great teacher. The, the, the question, <coughs> are you a writer and have you been in workshops? And, and any sense on your part about how a workshop works or doesn't work? Um, well, it, it can sometimes be complicated because, as you said, if the teacher or the person um, you know, running it um, isn't really aware of what your subject theme language use is, it's, it, you know, you can kind of sometimes come up, you want to listen and absorb what they're saying, but on the other hand, Yeah, that's that's the core issue, I think, to, yeah. to, to go where they are. So I was interested in saying that. Is that a hand? Yeah, it is. Um, I think we can. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's the I had a question that kind of came out of what you were just saying about um, there are times in your collaboration where you ask, is this a poem or not? And it made me think, um, and this is a big question, but however you want to handle it, um, how do you know whether something's not a poem? I know it has to be individual probably to your collaboration, but it strikes me as a really interesting question, especially for contemporary poems, poets, because there are so many ways in contemporary poetry you can write a poem that has nothing to do with traditional form. So how then does one decide this poem that I'm working on actually is a poem, and this poem I'm working on with the feedback from the other person doesn't really seem to be a poem at all. Well, I guess when, when I ask the question, is this a poem, I don't really mean, is this a poem? I really mean, is this poem working yet? Um, it's... It wants to be a poem. It's not that I think it's prose or anything like that. I just think it, it's incomprehensible to the reader, perhaps. Um, I, I heard Marvin Bell once give a definition of poetry as being anything the poet says is a poem is a poem. Um, I, I don't really know. It, it's um, like pornography. You, you can't define it, but you know it when you see it. How's that? <laughs> It's a really important question because because what if a poet is making a turn going in a different direction you know that might be really important for the future of that person's work um, and so maybe well-meaning in a, in a workshop you know we we say well that that really isn't working but but maybe we stopped something that wanted to go another way so it's, it's really important how people talk to each other about, about this and also what the poet whose work is being looked at is careful about taking and leaving behind. You know, if, if four people say that's no good, 
and then the person goes home and says, that's good. I want to go on with that, you know, so. I must hurt. I once heard, risks are the things that critics call mistakes. So it means you're going in another direction, but somebody doesn't like it because it isn't like your old work. Very Baltimore. Everybody always likes the older way better. Exactly. Well, it comes to a point where you really have to trust what your gut tells you. Um, particularly when, when you are starting to send work out to magazines and it keeps getting rejected. It took me a while to figure out that um, some of the worst places would reject what I considered my best poems. <laughs> The, the best places might take what I consider my worst poems. I mean, and it didn't mean that those editors were right. It meant that um, it depended how, you know, what they had for breakfast that day and what, what, what they were tired of reading. So ultimately, you have to listen to all the criticism and really think about it, but then you have to make your own decision about what you're doing. And Bill Stafford used to say, our poet laureate, that, that he had to send a poem out seven times to get it published, even when he was a poet laureate. Do you remember that? Yeah. And Linda Paston used to weigh her rejection slips. <laughs> when I was first starting, I didn't know any other poets, and I was very isolated. And I was more excited to get a rejection slip than not to get any mail. I mean, it was action. There was my work out in the real world. Um, but I'm, I, used, I'm, I'm sorry. I used to send poems to 30 places. I, have, I kept very good records. I would show that to students. Look, 30 pages? I didn't get I'd have the envelope ready to send, send it right out as soon as it came back, and then it wouldn't upset me once it was back out of the door. I know somebody who papered a room with rejection stamps. <laughs> Robert Bly, um, I wrote, back in the 50s, he used to publish this magazine called The 50s, and then he published something called The 60s. And I sent a poem to him in the 50s, and he told me that the language was really boring. I, and, and, he, and he told me what to read. He said, you need to read Wallace Stevens. And he gave me a list, and he even bothered to write out the lines of the poem that he liked. So recently, I had to write an essay about his work and for this magazine. and. I somehow, in my great mess, came across his rejection letter of the 50s, and I included it, because I thought it was remarkable that he took the trouble to write by hand this careful, thoughtful letter. And when the article came out with that rejection letter, he, he wrote to me and thanked me, and he said he was glad to know that it was useful. <laughs> I just have to tell you the best rejection letter story. The Atlantic used to have two kinds of rejection slips. One was the normal printed, um, we're sorry your work doesn't fit our needs right now. And the other was, this poem was of particular interest to us, I'm sorry we couldn't take it. So over the course of years, I started sending poems to the Atlantic when I was 12 years old. Over the course of the years, I collected 
20 of those special ejection slips, and I clipped them together, and I put them with a poem, and I said, I understand you can um, exchange 20 of these for one acceptance. <laughs> and it didn't work. I just got back the normal rejection letter. <laughs> and and they, I had to wait until that editor died and a new, more sympathetic <laughs> editor came to the Atlantic before I got an acceptance. Um, maybe one, one more question. There, um, the young lady in the back or in the hat. Um, I guess I'm wondering, when you put a reference to another work of literature in your poetry, I, either of you, how do you do that without that reference overshadowing the point you're trying to make? You mean if you, like when I quote from Horace, I'm not as good as Horace, so will it not? I mean, that, that's the, the import, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. That, that's an interesting question. Um, I suppose I think that it, it will enhance your work rather than, than detract. Um, but I get, and you only usually generally use a line or something. You're not allowed to use long quotations, but that's a very interesting question. I hadn't thought of it. But it's interesting because language is, belongs to all of us, essentially. I mean, it's uh, unlike other arts. Um, a painter makes reference, perhaps, to other artists, but language is, is literal. I mean, we, we, we consciously and unconsciously are using language that comes to us from all over the place. How would you answer that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is, you know, if you're using Shakespeare, it sort of overpowers the poem. So it's a... Okay, well, thank you for the questions. And we're going to have some closing poems now, and then there will be a little time at the end if you have more questions, I'm sure. Thanks. I'd like to read a poem by a poet whose work I love named Sterling Brown. I don't know. Do you all know who Sterling Brown was? Sterling Brown was, was one of the great African-American poets. He, he, was, he taught at Howard um, for over 50 years and, and was a giant um, of a man in every way. He, his knowledge was encyclopedic. His, um, his poetry, though very little of it was really published, um, it is really terrific. So this is a poem called After Winter. And it's about a farmer who's lived through the lean years and is hoping for a better future. After Winter by Sterling Brown. He snuggles his fingers in the blacker loam. The lean months are done with, the fat to come. His eyes are set on a brushwood fire, but his heart is soaring higher and higher. Though he stands ragged, an old scarecrow, this is the way his swift thoughts go. Butter beans for Clara, sugar corn for Grace, and for the little fella run in space. Radishes and lettuce, eggplants and beets, turnips for the winter and candied sweets, homespun tobacco, apples in the bin, for smoking and for cider when the folks drops in. He thinks with the winter his troubles are gone, 
10 acres unplanted to raise dreams on. The lean months are done with, the fat to come. His hopes, winter wanderers, hasten home. Butter beans for Clara, sugar corn for Grace, and for the little fella running space. I'm going to read one of my rare political poems, though I like to think that all poetry is political in its way. Um, this is in a form called a pantoum that's based on the repetition of lines, and it's for all of our lovely politicians who don't believe in global warming, and it's called, and it's another Adam and Eve garden poem. Years after the garden. Years after the garden closed on Adam, a thousand thousand gardens take its place. Hold my hand, I hear the waters rising. Roses, lemons, lilac, hemlock, grape. A thousand thousand gardens take its place. Is each an Eden waiting to be lost? Roses, lemons, lilac, hemlock, grape. What was God thinking when he made the apple? Is each an Eden waiting to be lost, seeds of knowledge, carelessness, and greed? What was God thinking when he made the apple? Did he do it only for the story? Seeds of knowledge, <coughs> carelessness, and greed. They say the ice cap is already melting. Did he do it only for the story? Meringues of childhood melted on the tongue. They say the ice cap is already melting. The angel still waits with his flaming sword. Meringues of childhood melted on the tongue, but innocence alone will never save us. The angel still waits with his flaming sword. Flowers and vegetables, forests tremble. Innocence alone will never save us. How beautiful the world is in the morning. Flowers and vegetables, forests tremble. How beautiful the world is in the morning. Years ago, the garden closed on Adam. Hold my hand, I hear the waters rising. Thank you so much, Linda and Myra, um, for the gift of your poetry, generosity, and kindness to be here this evening, um, and, and the spirit that always comes into the room and, in one of these readings. And I really feel like you know, bringing us to ourselves and then back out in some way better. It's really, really beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, it's hard to get back to saying regular things. <laughs> Um, but before we do, I have to, you know, there's a few things that, you know, we try and close with. Um, I just want to let everyone know that at the back of the room, I believe on the table back near the coat rack, um, there's an um, evaluation forms for the evening for how you like the um, program. Um, we'd love to hear what you think. 
Um, also, we have an email sign-up sheet if you would like to get information about future programs, workshops, um, all of the things that we do. And it would just be for the poetry events. Um, you wouldn't get every single thing that is going on here at the Pratt, although that wouldn't be a bad thing. But we try and be a little you know, respectful of you know, the delusion in your emails. Um, there's also in the back um, you know, a compass with program guides, some free little poetry cards um, from Poets House in New York that are just nice, sort of like a poem in your pocket. It, please feel free to take those. Um, and then the other thing, oh, and then there's a how to get published guide in the back that's prepared by our humanities department for anyone who writes poetry and would like to see that. Um, and also, finally, we would like to invite you all during regular hours to come back and browse our humanities department. And we have a, you know, a deep and wonderful collection. And, um, you know, we would love to have you come back, come in the humanities and periodicals. There's a lot of um, nice treasures down there as well. So please feel free. And um, lastly, but most importantly, Linda and Myra's books are um, for sale at the back of the room. And um, I think they're feel free to have them signed. I think they're so. um, And thank you all again for coming. And thank you very much, Linda and Myra, for a beautiful evening.